but you know, as a society, we 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 pay money to for the infrastructure around locking up certain amounts of land. But what if our food producing ecosystems could be interspersed with preservation of native ecosystems? So whether it's trees or grasslands or whatnot. Wouldn't it be cool if we didn't need to just lock up bits of land and say, this is the land that's pristine and pretty, and this is the land that's messed up because we're using it for food. What if we could actually have them on the same place? That would be amazing. It sounds like a utopia. If we can make it work, it'll be so good for people and for the planet. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Dr Angela Patterson is an agricultural research scientist based at Sydney University's Plant Breeding Institute near Narrabri, where, over the past year, she has been the study leader of the hugely exciting Native Grains from Paddock to Plate study. Angela works closely with Gamilaroi-speaking people residing on Gomoroi country near Narrabri, Moree, and from the greater Gamilaroi and Yawularoi country of northwest New South Wales. And she works with farmers and other partners from the region that is truly one of our great traditional and modern bread bowls. Yama, Angela, thank you for joining me in conversation. Yama, Anthea, it's a pleasure to be here. It's so lovely to have you here. May I first pay my deep respects to the traditional owners and custodians of the country where you are and of Gadigal country where I'm speaking to you from and to all custodians of land across Australia. Thanks, Anthea. And I'd also like to pay my deepest respects to the Gadigal people where you are and the Gomorrah people from up here at Narrabri um, and around this region. And I'd like to pay my respects to them for their traditional custodianship of knowledge and of country and um, my wish and desire that that should continue. Um, but also like to personally thank the Aboriginal elders and community members that I work with and provide oversight for me and for this project. Um, I'm not an Aboriginal person and I feel very, very privileged to be working in this space under their authority. Thank you for that. That's, that's so important. It's just so good to have the opportunity to speak with you. I must say I'm feeling a little bit homesick but very uh, heartwarmed as I picture those beautiful black soil plains Nandiwar Ranges and the big open country where you are, where I grew up. <laughs> so how is the country looking this summer? It is so much greener now than it was this time last year. <laughs> um, it is beautiful up here at the moment. After two years of drought, then it got so much rain, the country is just come to life and there's birds and there's insects and lizards and frogs and mammals and they're all returning and it's just so wonderful. You have to come up for a visit, Anthea. I do, I do. <laughs> With climate change, industrial cereal crops or grasses are under pressure uh, from reduced yield, reduced protein profiles and more. Increasing the agrobiodiversity of our carbohydrate and other food sources is 
really a big growing quest around the world to build food resilience. The Native Grains work seems really integral to that change agenda here for our food and landscape futures. So what particularly drew you to um, agricultural research and plant breeding? I, I went to Pennant Hills High School and we had this tiny little egg plot down the back. It was only about two hectares in size, surrounded by houses. And we used to have, I think, three sheep. And we'd buy a calf in about March and then have to sell it by September each year because it got too big for our little two-hectare ag plot. <laughs> um, but that, that was what led me to study agriculture, really. It was, it was my school teachers and that experience, just uh, that combination of the, the brain work of studying science and agriculture at school combined with actually physically applying it outside. And I'm a hands-on outdoorsy person, as you've already picked up, and um, so that really worked for me. It's fantastic. Experiential learning, which is what this study is about in many ways. Mm. Okay, let's turn now to the native grains from the paddock to the plate study. At the start of NAIDOC week this year, you and colleagues launched the first report from the one-year study and held three excellent public webinars about the project and its findings. And I think those webinars were watched by hundreds, if not thousands of people around Australia. Do you have an idea of how many people tuned in? Well, we had we had 400 people registered to watch it um, mm -hmm. and live we had over 100 every time, which is Fantastic. amazing. And in, in this year of everyone being on Zoom all the time, um, I was very grateful to have so many people interacting live. So what we wanted to do was we released a public report and we did some webinars so that anyone from whatever level of skill you're at, literacy or numeracy skill, can access the information and hopefully apply it in their situation. So... Listeners, luckily, we can all watch highlights from those webinars uh, for free on YouTube now. Okay, Angela, the ambition, approach and diverse potential benefits of the Native Grains Project are just huge. The project speaks to reconnecting food, people and place and to elevating food sovereignty and the cultural provenance and environmental importance of grain, herb and shrub foods that once did and could again really flourish on grasslands and grassy woodlands. Can you briefly tell us how the project came about and who were the key people who got behind it to make it possible? So about four years ago, um, there was a, a small group of people in the agriculture faculty of the University of Sydney um, that wanted to integrate more Indigenous knowledge into their teaching. And um, part of that came out of the regenerative agriculture movement and connections in that area. Um, people that are working on native plants and native grasses and wanting to bring more of that into teaching in the university. Very important, emerging space. We need to teach the young people as they graduate um, where it might fit. Um, so they started that and they also started a subject, but the, the purpose of the excursion was to take third-year students away and immerse them in Indigenous food and knowledge systems. So take them out of the city and travel away. And so they took this excursion up to northern Australia and, and visited a whole lot of different Indigenous communities, but also specifically communities that engage in food production and land management. And also, while they were up there, also engage with non-Indigenous businesses and people to see how everything fits in its context. And so I, as a staff member, attended this excursion as well, thinking I was going on as a chaperone for what would be a, a really cool trip to the Northern Territory. But that trip changed my life. And as part of that, I was exposed to such diverse sets of knowledge and also people that are still very actively connected to their country in a way that was quite different to what I was taught 
as a non-Indigenous person growing up. And that immersive experience really was the, the, the tick for me because I'd read stuff in books and I'd read Bruce Pascoe's book before I went and, of course, thought it was fantastic, didn't really know how to apply it until I went and saw other people that were doing similar things and then felt, yes, we need to bring that into New South Wales and, um, and so that's that's where the project started. And myself and the other teachers from that excursion, which is Peter Ant and Tina Bell and Rebecca Cross, all, all doctors and professors and whatnot, um, we all started our little core group of, okay, if we're going to do a project, what are we going to do? What's it going to look like? And that's how it started. Fantastic. And then Bruce Pascoe and Black Duck Foods along the way have also been very supportive, haven't they? <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I, I contacted Bruce years ago, but he... He and his group are very busy, as you can imagine, getting inquiries from everyone, which is great because there's lots of people interested. But I was one voice in a million and so I didn't really expect to hear much. Um, but over time that connection developed and I'm very, very honoured for the support and um, and connection that they provide and also oversight, even though they're down on Ewan country, um, the, the connection that we have with the Ewan people through this project is just really special and important. Um, and also the other people that work on the farm. So uh, Noel, who's the farm, who works on the farm and the farm manager, um, and also Bruce's wife, Lynn, who does a lot of the cooking and the trialling with the, the flowers that they produce. Um, it's been really, really special connection. Having sat in on the webinars, it's almost unfair to ask you to summarise the project. Having said that, uh, can I ask you to briefly describe the scope of the study and tell us in a nutshell what the executive summary in the report says? <laughs> Good question. Um, so I can tell you what we set out to achieve and then what our results were. So what we wanted to do was do one iteration of native grains from paddock to plate in its modern context, but looking at the three-pronged areas of sustainability. So economic sustainability, environmental sustainability, and cultural sustainability, social slash cultural um, because all businesses today operate, need to have that three-pronged sustainability approach. So what we wanted to do was kind of simulate if a business was going to do this, how would it look in a modern production chain? Um, and the production chain for grains, not just native ones, but any grains, is a lot longer than other foods. So, for example, if you get a fruit, you kind of, someone grows it, someone picks it, it goes in a box, it goes to a supermarket or to a chef. There's only kind of four people that handle it. Whereas grains is a lot longer because you've got the growing, then you've got harvesting, then it gets bulked, then it gets shipped in bulk somewhere else and then somebody else mills it, then it gets shipped in bulk somewhere else, then somebody cooks with it, then it gets um, then it gets sent to a consumer or a supermarket. So the production chain has a lot more hands. So the executive summary, I suppose, of what we found is that this system is very achievable with native grains, but what we had to do was find a couple of recommendations that people could take away that would fit all the elements of the production chain with the three-pronged sustainability. So is it going to make money? Is it going to be good for the environment? Which is really a no-brainer. Um, the, and the third one was culturally, how does it fit in with modern systems? Um, and what we found, the main recommendation was that up here on Gomorrah country, and again, that this will, this will be different in different parts of Australia, on Gomorrah country, we found native millet is probably one of the grains that we think is going to work best um, for its paddock to plate potential and that three-pronged sustainability. But we looked at several other species as well that have potential depending on what sort of business you want to operate. So it can be done. 
It can be done. And that was the executive summary. But just just stepping back a little bit um, and to help me with my pronunciation, can you please introduce and describe to us what the three big Ds are and how they're pronounced? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. My pronunciation is still terrible as well. And that's not just in Camilleray. That is in every language. I'm not very good at languages. Um, so duar is the name of, it's, it's a generic name for, for foods, but usually kind of bread type foods in Gamilaray. So duar is what we've used for the breads and the food products that come from native grains. Um, duar, um, du, dunbar is the name for uh, lots of grasses. So um, dun is, is like a hanging thing. So if you've got um, a grass head, or a seed head, you can imagine when it's full of seed, it kind of hangs. Um, so that's where that word comes from. And then I spoke to some Gamilaray language experts and asked them, what would be the equivalent word in Gamilaray for a grain crop? Um, you know, we have wheat crop. Because I never wanted to use the word traditional because it, that depends on what perspective you're coming from. Is traditional a wheat crop or is traditional native grain crop? So we had to come up with a unique word. And they said they didn't really have a word so they, they sort of invented one. Um, and Gamilaro language is quite incredible like this, that you can add, add suffixes and prefixes like in English. So the word they said was dunbarbilla, which is lots of hanging grains in one place. Um, so that, that's where those words come from. So duwar is, is the food, dunbar is the, the grains, and then dunbarbilla is the crop. A number of other native herb and shrub foods were also part of the picture and of the nutrition analysis that Dr. Claudia Keitel spoke about in the first webinar, episode six of the YouTube. (laughs) Can you please paint a picture of what the main grass species were, along with some of the key herbs and shrub foods that you investigated as part of the overall uh, project? The main grains we investigated on Gomorrah country um, were the, the grasses, kangaroo grass, Queensland bluegrass, native millet, Mitchell grass um, and button grass. So they're, they're the, the main actual grass species. But um, Aboriginal people didn't only harvest the specific, what we call a grass botanically, they harvested grains from grasslands. So grassland is a diverse ecosystem. Naturally, it would have legumes, it would have shrubs, it would have herbs, all growing in the same area. Um, so there were some other species that we included that produce edible grains, but botanically they're not grasses. So that would um, be purslane or pigweed, which is damu in Gamilaray. Um, that's actually a succulent. Um, then one most people will be familiar with spiny mat rush, which is lamandra. Um, that that one's a, a it's a shrub kind of thing. It's a, a grassy looking shrub. Um, the seed of old man saltbush actually creates really yummy bread. I was actually just making some focaccia on the weekend, so we included that one as well. Um, and that we also think has good commercial potential. Um, and then there, there are several others which are, which are already known, like all the wattles, the acacia seeds, which some of them are shrubs, some are trees, um, but a lot of those are edible as well, but they already have um, market potential. So we haven't focused too much on that. Um, and they, they were the main ones. And what were some of the most promising or perhaps surprising nutrition finding highlights? I, I remember just being sort of blown away by um, the protein profile of some of the grains that uh, Claudia described, and also 
um, the oils in some of the acacias and other plants. Can you just perhaps just pick one or two highlights that surprised you or excited you? Well, yes, absolutely. So we always knew that the protein and the micronutrients, the fibre, would be high because they're physically smaller seeds. But some of them were off the charts. So Mitchell grass protein content is similar to a legume. And so people eat legumes for their pulse protein. And, and I, I, was, I was really shocked. And I have confirmed that with people from other universities through my back channels that are also doing bits and pieces and haven't published yet because I, I, was, I was a bit surprised. I thought we'd done something wrong. But, nope, that's similar in up from other research from other set collections of the grain. So the protein content in Mitchell grass is very significant. And the other one that surprised me was the oil content. Um, and um, particularly the, the oil and the omega-3 fatty acids in purslane. I'd read it from overseas that it was quite good, but we needed to confirm it in Australia. And it has omega-3 fatty acid content similar to linseed. So people eat linseed for its health properties, um, but purslane seed is very similar to that in, in its omega-3 profile. That, that is just so exciting. I remember being out doing some gardening work at, at Angonia and walking along the highway in the afternoon to go for a walk and seeing this this weed along the side of the road and I just looked at it and I thought I'm sure you can eat that <laughs> and, and, and uh, I'm so excited to realize that I was actually looking at purslate yeah okay and uh, just what was the rationale for uh and what were some of the broader benefits you had in mind by including you know a holistic range of grass herb and shrub plants in the research I think because we wanted to start broad to give people options and then to inform what the next iteration of research and development would be. So we wanted to look at everything and get a, a taste of everything, <laughs> literally and figuratively, and then from that pick the best few to go forward. Um, the other reason we did it was that um, historically these grains were not grown as monocultures. They were grown in ecosystems. So we wanted to get a picture for all the different potential species that could be grown in an ecosystem um, to start to paint the picture if we were going to restore a food production ecosystem as opposed to picking single species and growing as monocultures, how, what would the nutrition content be per hectare of land doing it that way? And plants of different heights and roots of different depths for that incredible biota above and below the soil. Just amazing. Um, there's a lovely quote in the report from Len Waters. Uh, what does he say? He says, every plant is a part of a community. If you take that plant away from their community, it is like you away from your community. How would you feel? <laughs> um, the importance of reconnecting with trad traditional healthy foods, culture, language and country as part of a healing journey, especially for older people, were things that Rhonda Ashby and Bernadette Duncan both spoke about very powerfully in the webinars. And Auntie Beryl, of course, wet everybody's taste buds with her great cooking and description of the food properties and the easy, very tasty bakeability, if you like, of the native grain flours too. Can you share some of your feelings about or describe some of the very special things that you learnt from working with these women leaders? Oh. I have been so inspired and humbled, I think. Um, I, I consider myself a dumb, smart, white person. <laughs> Hopefully that's not an offensive term to anyone. Um, but I, I, I thought I was smart 
And then when I started to realise how not so smart I was, I was very humbled. And um, I'm very grateful to the women for sharing the holistic way that their connection to country um, leads to the way that they, they do their life. And I think that um, for me growing up, it's not that I was taught something wrong about the way we should care for the environment, and I very passionately believe we're not doing our environment good and we need to do better. Um, but the way that I, I thought about it and was and was taught was more that you live in a place and you're in charge of it and you've got to make sure that it's, it's looked after, otherwise you'll have to move to Mars because Earth will be a desert wasteland. And I didn't want to move to Mars, so I thought, okay, we, we need to look after the planet, right? That's not wrong. That's absolutely true. But the, it's a different way of thinking when, um, when I've been taught by some of the elders up here and somebody said something that really stuck with me, and that is we are part of country and country is part of us. And when I finally realised that's actually quite different to the way that I was taught, it opened my eyes to the, the holistic type of healing when you realise that you are actually part of your country. It's not that you live on it and you look after it, but you're separate from it, but rather you are part of it. You think about it and look after it differently because it's connected to you rather than it's separate from you. Um, and that it, both ways, neither way of thinking is wrong. They're just different. And knowing both ways now is, is really enriching. And, I'm yeah, again, I'm so grateful to, to Rhonda Bernadette and many other women that I connect with up here um, that are doing great things on country to also bring holistic healing and connection to country, even to people that live out here on Gomorrah country but really haven't had access to land or had access to, um, to large amounts of foods grown on their land um, to find that connection for themselves again. And with language and with songs sort of being on and with and part of country singing it together. It's beautiful, isn't it? Sociocultural and environmental sustainability are really important parts of the study and report, and some of the opportunities identified included reinvigorating local identity, knowledge sharing, particularly with youth, as well as new ways to work side-by-side -side with colonial food systems and environmental management structures. Can you tell us about a, a few of the key things that local Aboriginal uh, communities and local Aboriginal land councils particularly indicated that they would like to perhaps focus upon with regard to native grasses as an industry going forward? There's been a real desire for, for access to the river. Um, that, that came up several times and most of when we did this consultation was in 2019 um, and early 2020 when the river was dry. And there was a lot of, I, I, what I sensed was a lot of pain about not seeing water in the river or rivers, so access to, to water but access to land near the river seemed to be a key theme. Um, and the other key theme that, that I picked up on in several different um, places was the desire to teach their young people but I also teach young people from all cultures as well about how to respectfully engage with native plants and foods and that holistic connection. Um, I, I think there was a sense that young people are just, in general, it's a generalisation, not interested. Um, they all want to go and, and follow the way of, of TVs and <laughs> connected to your phone, not connected to your country. And I don't think that's just a problem in Aboriginal culture. I think that's that's just humans. Um, but that desire to teach young people. And so the, the output from that was more connection with the schools. And that's the other thing we've got on our website. So we did these um, 
did these webinars, but the other thing I could pull out of it was snippets that are school-length videos that could be used um, for teaching in high schools and primary schools as well. So they're on the website too alongside the webinar recordings. So, so I suppose the things that that kind of calls up are the idea that if you do get more native grains back in the landscape, there'll be incredible new opportunities for uh, relearning or reanimating cultural burning skills and things like that. That, that was a key theme as well, yeah. Lots of interest in, in um, burning. But there's a, there is a, a cultural thing there as well. So um, traditional roles for men and women, and usually the women would be in charge of collecting the food and making the food, including the grains. Um, not always, but in some places, that the, the burning was more of the men's job, um, men's business. But it differs a little bit um, depending on where you are and who, who's involved. It's interesting. So bringing back the holistic model of caring for country isn't just a case of let's plant three hectares and then burn it and then harvest it. It's actually about recreating the system and um, and the connection of the people as well as the grains, as well as the food and the markets in a modern context. And can you tell us about some of the environmental sustainability or farming systems opportunities that non-Aboriginal land managers on Gomoroi country expressed in, perhaps expressed interest in? We, we make very strong effort to not only speak to Aboriginal people. So um, we know that uh, there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of interest in growing native grasses from all sorts of cultures. And the regenerative agriculture movement is very much based on being able to have perennial grass species involved in your systems. And many of those are natives, not only, but mostly natives involved in regenerative ag systems. So there is quite a lot of um, non-Aboriginal farmers that already are engaged in growing natives for various reasons. Um, usually, though, that the market for that seed is, is a real challenge. And that came up multiple times when I spoke to people that are involved in growing native grains for seed, that the, the markets themselves are not well formed. Um, they're really irregular depending on rain. And so that the people that are trying to invest a lot of money in seed production of natives get undercut in the good years, not, in, not because people are deliberately trying to hurt the system, but they get undercut in the good years when there's lots of wild harvesting that can go on or opportunistic harvesting. And so, in, you know, it costs them thousands of dollars to set up production, really, you know, good production systems for native grains, which would go into the revegetation market. But then the markets are not regulated and the seed batches are not checked and the germination's not checked and seeds being passed from geographic areas depending on where the rain is. And so that, that came up in our conversations with farmers, that the seed market itself needs some work somehow. Um, so we, we want to make a recommendation about that. That's not my role to fix it, but um, that needs to be looked at probably at a government level and an industry level. The other thing that came out of speaking to farmers was they didn't see a way that this could work without having monocultures um, from, a, from an economic point of view. So not that they didn't, want they didn't want diverse ecosystems. Everyone wants it. They didn't have any advice for me. If I said, I want to go and plant this, but I don't just want to do a monoculture, I don't even want to do strips. I actually want to do it all lured in together. How can we make this work economically? And the feedback we got was they didn't think that was going to work. They said, look, I think you have to, because the weeds, it's the weeds that are going to be the problem, because once you get a diverse ecosystem, the harvesting is a challenge, but you could make it work somehow with technology and a lot of labour. But controlling the weeds is a real challenge, and the, even poisonous weeds as well. So things like deadly nightshade, 
which grows and, and burrs, you know, that they, they grow really well in the same sort of ecosystems in grasslands. And so if you've got a whole lot of Nagura burr in your paddock, it not only competes with the edible grains, but it contaminates the product and trying to clean that up is a real pain and expensive. And so the feedback they thought was, look, if we, if we want to start, we probably need to start with a clean paddock with no weeds in it, which means something probably something that's been cropped for several years. And then you convert a, a section of your cropping paddock into a, um, into a native grains production area. And um, that the, the only currently commercially available grain um, has been produced that way from a clean paddock with a lot of um, lot of control over what sort of grain you're getting off it at the end. So, um, and I didn't disagree with them. I think probably in the current economic system, they're probably right. But I still think we have to try. And I think that if we use some creative ways of earning other forms of income from the same hectare of land, I think that's that's the first place we at least need to attempt it. So getting carbon credits or biodiversity credits, maybe some grazing, maybe some tourism um, or animal protection on that same land, um, maybe also being able to, um, to, to quantify the, the economic benefits to the other parts of the farm in having refuges for, for birds and predatory insects that predate on the, the bad insects, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, so that also might be an important way of making it work. Gosh, Lots of avenues to to look at and hook up. Um, now, what everyone wants to know, how do we get more of these great grains from the paddock to the plate in ways that work for people and for country so that we can all enjoy more dua bread and fully appreciate its cultural and other significance and provenance? I'm thinking of Chris from Black Duck Foods' description of buying dua every 50 kilometres when you're on a road trip and knowing where it came from. <laughs> Can you please describe the two broad options or pathways for growing native grains that your research refers to? In the report, it refers to monoculture and polyculture production paths, and in a sense you've just alluded to that. Um, But in the webinars, you also pictured those options in a really fabulous way by describing them as factory or the pantry option. Can you please describe what you mean by the factory and the pantry farming option? Sure. So currently our food comes from food factories, um, what I call food factories. So we have wheat or chickpeas or rice, sorghum, chia, even you know, chia and quinoa as well, you know, so-called ancient healthy grains. They're also still produced in food factories. Well, you've got one species planted in, in long straight rows, um, hundreds of hectares, you know, tens, dozens, hundreds of hectares per paddock. Um, and that is managed all together. And so I call that a food factory because it's very streamlined and that increases the production per hectare very high. So there's, there's varieties that are bred to respond to that sort of condition um, and then fertilisers are used, whether they're organic or inorganic. Um, chemicals, whether they're organic or inorganic, are used to manage the paddock in one system. So that's a food factory, very efficient, produces cheap food, has literally saved millions of lives over the last few uh, decades, um, what they call the Green Revolution in the mid-1900s, um, which, which has just lifted a lot of people out of poverty and saved lives because it was cheap and easy to produce food. But that's what I call a factory. Um, the other option that we're investigating in this project is a polyculture or a food pantry. So historically here, um, the native grains were produced in an ecosystem. So you'd have a grassland 
that would be full of diverse plants and animals and insects, soil biota, everything, all in the same area. So they might have an understory and then a, a, an upper story. Um, an open woodland might have a tree every now and then and there'd be birds living in the tree um, and, and maybe other animals. You'd have shrubs, legumes, grasses, um, succulents like purslane, all interspersed in the same area. So historically that was managed with fire, which did change the species diversity somewhat, um, but the main way it was managed was with a whole lot of labour. So it was hand harvested. People would go through and take what they needed from the country using stone or wooden tools um, and the people in the communities would all go through and, and harvest the bits and pieces they needed in a sustainable way together. So that, that I call a food pantry. And I've found that now that I know what to look for, when I'm out, I can just grab a little bit of, of this species or that species and have a little nibble when I'm out on country and just walking around. Um, so it's more like a pantry where you kind of go and access your foods when you need it and when you want it. So they're the two things that we investigated or were trying to investigate in this project. Obviously, the, the factory we know works, has been working, and it works in a modern context. But the, the environmental and the social slash cultural outcomes of that are less desirable. I'm not saying that they're bad and, you know, they, they should be discarded. That's not true. We need food factories for food security. And they can be done, um, if done well, they can be done relatively sustainably. But food pantries, we don't know if it's going to work in a modern context at a big scale. Of course, anyone can have a garden and we all have gardens out the back and we all have our own polycultures of herbs and vegetables or whatever that we grow. Can we do it on a big hectare scale without needing to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of human labour hours, which has oh and implications as well as just the cost implications, um, harvesting our food the way that it has been done before the arrival of Europeans. Um, we don't know. We need to try and we need to do it on a big scale. And um, re-establishing re the ecosystem is a very time-consuming exercise. So we're trying to do it in a scientific way, but it's still going to take five, probably ten years to get an ecosystem functioning again up here. So it's a very long-term research proposition. But it's also a very exciting one, isn't it, because it relates to uh, landscape-wide NRM and really uh, different visions of mixed farming and silver culture on farm in your biodiversity corridors and all those sorts of things. So there's so much uh, potential there, isn't there? Yeah, and I very, very passionately believe we have to try and I think it will work. It's just a case of how big we can get it to work. So. To, you know, anyone can go and plant a hectare or so and or, or take a hectare they've already got and kind of fix it up. And I do encourage landowners to do that for their ecosystem services and just because it's the right thing to do, that it is expensive. So to really make it work on a big scale, I think we have to get the economics in line. When we've got parks and reserves already that are preserving native ecosystems, but you know, as a society, we, we, we pay money to, for the infrastructure around locking up certain amounts of land. But what if our food-producing ecosystems could be interspersed with preservation of native ecosystems, so whether it's trees or grasslands or whatnot? Wouldn't it be cool if we didn't need to just lock up bits of land and say, this is the land that's pristine and pretty and this is the land that's messed up because we're using it for food? What if we could actually have them on the same place? 
that would be amazing. It sounds like a utopia, but if we can make the economics work, however, might not be just by market, might be by government intervention in some ways or might be by social enterprises, which is what black duck foods do, um, if we can make it work, it'll be so good for people and for the planet. And for our broadacre agricultural landscapes, which are not where many parks are locked up. In a funny way, it's a way of getting biodiversity back into our broadacre contexts. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay, I think we've touched on the benefits of vertical, economic vertical stacking. You've spoken about that in different ways already, and that goes to what we were just chatting about then too, which is all uh, really important and on the horizon, I suppose. Uh, just uh, back to the report and the study, what were some of the key nitty-gritty technical cha challenges for both the factory and the pantry options? And I'm thinking about harvesting and threshing and those sorts of things. Um, absolutely. And this is a really interesting modernisation, I suppose, um, question that has, has to be discussed. And I don't have the answers. As a researcher, I just present the options and people can discuss it for themselves. Because Historically, the supply chain for native grassland food products, the grains, um, was that um, a family group or a clan would uh, manage the land and that same clan and the members of that clan would do the harvesting. Then they take the product and they take it to the, the group of people in their, their clan responsible for processing it, so which is usually women sitting around yandying and threshing and they'd sing songs as they did it and they'd spend hours doing it. It's really cool. Um, I'm sure it was very hard work, obviously. Um, and then the, the people in that same family group will be responsible for cooking it and then everyone would share it together. And the, the key factor there is that everybody knew each other and they were physically living on the land where the grain was harvested so they could see it. So the supply chain implication is if you harvest it, say, in October and you get mostly winter-growing grasses in your mix, but you'll get a few that might be summer harvested, summer-growing species, um, but it'll be a mix and so you'll get diverse grain in your yandying um, bucket or yandying um, coolamon. Be diverse. But it's okay because you saw it when it was being grown, then you saw what you had in the coolamon, then you knew how much effort was required to clean it up, you knew how much effort was required to cook um, or grinding and then you knew what it was going to taste like and that was okay because you everyone had that trust and they all knew each other so it was okay. But in today's modern world, the supply chains are very long and separated and the people are all separated from each other. Most of the time, you don't know what paddock your grain came from. You don't know what silo it was placed in. You don't know who else's grain it was mixed with. Um, you don't know the, the strategies that were used to mill it. You, you probably can see the ingredients list on the back of the package of the food you buy, but other than that, you don't really know the provenance of any of those other ingredients that were added to it. Um, you just have to trust that it's a good food product. And so that's why we have rules and, um, and marketing you know, faux pas about consistency in our products. So that's one reason why we have monocultures, because you can produce a consistent product one reason why grains don't get mixed during either harvest or processing because you can produce a consistent product and everyone knows what to expect and they know that because of the product itself not because they know the person that was making it or the country that it came from so the the supply chain implications are in a modern world we have to because we know we're not going to have people living on small amounts of country managing land again that that's not 
that's not a realistic scenario. We have to find a way to mix the benefits and the beauty of native grains into a modern system. So how can we do this? By creating trust with consumers, by creating consistent products, but without losing the beautiful values that make native grains so good, which are the environmental and cultural benefits. And so the, the, the findings basically was what we found was we need to spend more money and effort on the post-harvest processing because that means we can have a diverse, hopefully, some sort of diversity in the paddock, but then post-harvest we can separate the products into consistent batches. Um, and that, that post-harvest and the marketing of the post-harvest product I think is where we need to spend the next amount of research money and also government investment in um, in regulation, if you like, but at least in some sort of industry body that can bring that that bit in between the paddock and the plate to make it work well for people um, and for supply chains. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the grains are very small, so there are some technical issues there about uh, new machinery and equipment to do all that as well. Yep, definitely. And some of that's been developed for the native grass seed supply chain for revegetation market, but to get it to food grade is kind of the next level. So you need the next level of cleaning and and we're going to spend a bit of time at the University of Sydney working on that early in the new year. Um, And can you tell us what it is about uh, Guli, native millet, that means that it offers the most potential on Gomorrah country for human food enterprise? And I suppose I'm referring back to some of those issues we just touched on. Yeah, native native millet is one of the easier ones to thresh, which is that post-harvest clean-up. The seed is not, it's small, but it's not the smallest of the native grains. And it also makes a fairly good tasting bread. So, and the yields are, they're not the best, but they're not the worst. It's kind of in between. So it's about, you know how I said at the start about that, trying to look at the paddock to plate supply chain and trying to make everyone a little bit happy. So Ghoulie kind of makes everyone a little bit happy. It's not too hard to grow. It's not too hard to thresh. And it's it's pretty good eating. So it's <laughs> not the best for any of them, but it, it ticks all of the boxes. And that's why that was the main recommendation for at least Gomorrah country. And people talk about kangaroo grass a lot and they talk about Mitchell grass a lot, but it, neither of those species ticked every single box in the same way that Gooley did. And for the pantry, was there a particular mix of perennial and annuals that stood out as a good sort of uh, starting point mix or is that really particular for each community, place and further research? Definitely one for further research. So we looked at the species, but not so much the species in context yet. Like, because I said, it takes five to 10 years to get the ecosystem going again. So we weren't able to make recommendations as to which ones should be grown with each other. But we, you know, basically the, the first place to start is by looking at your soil type, because certain species will go with each other on different soil types. And that's where any community would need to start. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the report also says that learning more about how to to grow and to sustain perennial uh, local native plant species together, Dunbarbilla, uh, in an agricultural or horticultural setting is a really rich potential area for future research and you've just alluded to that. Would you like to just comment on that a bit further or flag uh, the key next steps in that area that you see on the horizon? Um, we, we need to just get it working in a few different places. And when I say working, I mean, we need to get the paddock bit working in a few places. Then we can um, get the supply chain going. The model that Black Duck Foods uses, um, which is a social enterprise, um, really interesting. And I encourage people to to hear from Chris himself from Black Duck Foods, which is Bruce Pascoe's company. 
um, about how they make that work because that's that the social enterprises, how they cheaply pay for the labour, if you like, that's involved in harvesting lots of things by hand. Um, and I've had interest up here from other groups, including a group that wants to work with people with disabilities um, and get them involved in the harvesting. And I've also had other groups also wanting the, the kids, the young people in communities, to also be involved in doing some of, not the, not the super young, not, not talking about child labour, but like teenage age and young people, getting them involved in the harvesting as well. Um, and so doing those sorts of things by hand, I think it's probably how we're going to make it work. So if you can imagine walking through, um, I mean, where, wherever you live, let's just say you're walking through your own backyard, everybody in their backyard has a diverse mix of trees and shrubs and plants, not, not just edible ones, but anything. So you've got different heights. You've got things that flower and grow at different times of year. Um, and so if you can just imagine walking through once a month and taking whatever was ready to go once a month, so whether that's grains, flowers, fruits, um, vegetable-type things, you know, like a leafy green salad mix or whether it's a carrot type or whatever, just once a month taking it and then sending that batch to market and then going back in the next month doing spending a week in the field and then packaging and sending that and then doing... So you, every time you go through the field, you get a different batch of foods to send to market. And I think that's where we need to work at for the next couple of years sort of like horticulture in the greater garden and being able to understand and see what's there and know what to do with it at the right times of year and to help it uh, flourish in the next season. Yeah. You, your colleagues and uh, your community partners have, have achieved pretty amazing things in a one-year study. Uh, are there other reports from the study that we should be looking out for? Well, we, we need to get all the, the findings peer-reviewed and properly counted for and published. And so... We wanted to release a bit of an overview for the public because we know the peer review process takes a long time. <laughs> um, but very much it's important that we get the scrutiny of peer review. So um, for those scientifically minded and economically minded people listening to this that want to read the, the published papers, probably in the next year um, that they'll make it through the, the peer review process. Um, so that, that's what we're going to do next. And then after I'm finished that with our team, um, we're going to work more on the threshability. So that'll be the next report. That'll come out from AgriFutures um, and that, that will be on the, the recommendations for people about this post-harvest processing issue. Um, what sort of equipment is off the shelf that they can buy now and what, how we can integrate things like fire threshing and water threshing into the systems here, which aren't normally used for crops like wheat or chickpeas or field peas or oats or rice, um, but have potential for the native grains. And what about uh, Claudia's research on the nutrition profile of the 12, I think it was 12 species she looked at? Is that something that's in the peer review process for publication as well? It is. Uh, we're actually expanding as well before we send the final version off. So after the amazing findings that we found, and then I checked some of the more amazing ones with other colleagues and confirmed yes, what we thought we'd do is we want to make this publication quite comprehensive. So we're expanding the number of species that we're sending for testing. Um, particularly, I think we've got five more acacia species that are being included. Um, we've got um, three more grass species that I'm including as well. Um, it just takes time for me to fiddle around and collect enough grain to clean up and send to the lab. 
Um, but that's what we're going to do, expanding it a little bit before publishing because we think it's very important that that nutrition information helps inform the market as it develops. There's a lot of hearsay on Google. Um, once someone says something, lots of other people quote it. So we thought if we can get a nice big comprehensive paper um, and get that out to publicly available sources, then hopefully we can help people get some really good independent information and not so much hearsay. I was going to ask you to rate how you felt the project had gone over the last year in terms of its momentum and impact, but I think perhaps looking forward, would you like to just, you know, tell us about your vision or your big dream for what comes next, perhaps on on Gomorrah country and perhaps around or across the country, uh, looking in one year's time and then looking back? (laughs) Um, The the most important rating is probably not the one I give myself, but the one that people give the research Um, we need to know how is this research helpful and then what do you think the priorities are going forward we need to hear that from industry we need to hear that from aboriginal people need to hear that from landowners from governments everything so the the next one year strategy in addition to doing the the post-harvest processing project is to just drive around now COVID's hopefully allowing us to see people more face-to-face, drive around and talk to people more and listen and get feedback and then decide the next step together. Um, I I don't want to just be in my own little bubble and say I think I have the answers. Um, We need to get feedback and other people rating work next. Then the five-year vision, I think, is to find a way that we can help particularly Aboriginal communities but also people of all cultures be able to plant the grains because there's a seed supply challenge and so the, the market is desperate for these things in their in their foods but at the moment the seed for sowing is way more valuable than the market would be willing to pay so at the moment to buy um, for example to buy Mitchell grass seed you'd pay anywhere between oh, $35 and $200 $300 a kilogram for the seed and that's just a kilogram so you imagine flour at the supermarket is $1 a kilogram. Would you pay $300 to buy a kilo of flour? And that's not even cleaned up Mitchell grass. That's just the stuff that's at reveg grade. So the, the price is a, the seed is worth too much. So we need to bring the price down. So, that, and the supply is the main thing that will do that. Increase the supply and then um, satisfy this hungry market for seed. Then that will help. Um, in five years' time, actually having more product to send to consumers so they can start eating it in everyday food products from the cities. And finally, are there any call-outs or special hoys you'd like to, to make to people from the, from the project? Oh, absolutely. I have never been part of a project which has had so much in-kind offers of support and help ever. Um, usually you have to ask for favours all the time and you feel like you're asking for a favour. This has never felt like that. People have offered equipment and time and energy and knowledge, just offered it without me having to ask. And in that way, it's never been my project. It's been a collaborative effort. So there's the eight academics that are on my team within the unit. It's myself, Guy, Tina, Beck, Claudia, Ali, um, Shauna and Henry. So shout out to them. And then, of course, I mentioned the amazing Aboriginal partners we have up here. But I'd also like to shout out to some of the farming partners that have worked on this. John, who's locked up some land for us to be able to harvest, um, and Drew and Mitch from Penagcon, who've done a lot of the agronomic advising and connected us with a lot of other growers for this project. Thank you very much. 
And are there any other thoughts or comments that you might like to add as we wrap up? Like uh, uh, what, what can everyday people like me or small organisations do to get behind the work that you're doing and the communities you're working with? Um, well, the first thing I'd encourage people, make sure that you have a connection with the local Aboriginal elders on whatever country you're from. Um, obviously, the elders are busy people and I'm not talking about knocking on their door and saying, hi, I want to be your friend. Don't mean that. Um, I mean, find a way that's that's appropriate for you to understand a little bit about the knowledge that's connected to the country where you live, whether that's the city or the country. And then the second thing I'd encourage you to do is actually physically find some plants that are native to your area and put them in your backyard or on your farm and just grow them. Just try it and then eat them. <laughs> Don't talk about it, just do it. And that's where the most fun is. I mean, I'm going to, for Christmas this year, I'm so looking forward to bringing some native foods into our traditional Christmas dinner. And these aren't foods that I've gone and purchased. They're ones that I've just grown at home or collected from nearby in places I'm allowed to collect food from. Um, and so I can just encourage everyone, just have a go. Just try. Don't talk about it. Don't don't be a backseat driver. Do it for yourself and um, experience it. That's where the fun is. Thank you, Angela. Such a pleasure to hear about what you're doing and, and be inspired by it all. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Anthea. Let's keep in touch. I've been speaking with Dr. Angela Patterson from Sydney University's Plant Breeding Institute at Narrabri about the native grains from paddock to plate study that she has led over the past year. If you'd like to learn more about this exciting work and its research findings, head to the link Native Grains Introduction hyphen from paddock to plate hyphen full stop YouTube <laughs> to listen to 10 stories from the webinars or go to the University of Sydney website, news page and to search for download and read the study report. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.